Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'd like to start off by thanking Ed and Gary for filling in for us last week and apologizing to everyone else for Ed and Gary filling in for us last week. Well, those two knuckleheads were yammering on and on about a movie that I'm pretty sure doesn't exist. I was celebrating my birthday with a little bit of quiet reflection. I'm actually using one of the gifts that I got, which is a goosenecked pop filter, which I absolutely knew was a piece of recording equipment and not the name of a skateboard trick. Check this out. Paulo Papadopoulos purchased pumpernickel and pumice in a parcel. Just listen to those plosives fly. One of the other gifts that I received was a new translation of one of my favorite pieces of classical literature, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And I gotta say, this new translation really sheds a different light on some of the poetry that's in there. Uh, Let me give you an example. The version that I grew up with had the line being, A jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, beside me singing in the wilderness, Oh, wilderness would be paradise now. Which is nice. This new translation has the same passage reading, A jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, send island dressing. Oh, and some Swiss cheese, and corned beef, and sauerkraut. Are you writing this down? I hope you're writing this down, because it's very important to me that my Reuben and wine party go just right. Also, the title of the book, instead of the Rubaiyat, is the Reuben Yacht. And then in parentheses, it says, the boat where Omar likes to have his Reuben and wine parties. Oh, and the passage about the moving finger is filthy. Well, that's progress for you. But we got a comic book to talk about. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is hot off the presses from Devin Tui. If you see the Youngblood film, a warning is quite needed, because out of your anus, your poop will be excreted. But if you're not a baby man and can keep your undies spotless, sit back and enjoy the ride for this week's comic, Synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. What were Gary and Ed talking about last week? I should probably start screening their shows in advance. New Titans, number 59, October 1989. Beast of Burden. And Beast is spelled with two E's. You know, because a wildebeest, probably. Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Drotted by George Perez and Tom Grummet. Inkted by Bob McLeod. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by John Peterson and Mike Carlin. New Titan Roll Call. Cyborg. Starfire. Troya. Jericho. 
Nightwing, Raven, Bumblebee, Beast Boy, and Herald a little bit. Previously in New Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the Titans ran afoul of an industrious ungulate enthusiast who had a high-tech GNU costume and called himself Wildebeest. This antelope-adjacent asshole faced off against our titular team in a series of encounters wherein he would A. Concoct an unnecessarily complicated scheme that he never fully explained, 2. Get thwarted by our heroes, and C. Escape and reveal that his apparent defeat was all part of an even more complicated scheme which he refused to even partially explain. It was annoying. Speaking of annoying, Cyborg engaged in a frustratingly repetitive cycle of breaking up with and then reconciling with his girlfriend-slash-physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles, before eventually committing himself to making their long-distance relationship work. Good for them! In more recent Titan news, the gang went to space so that Wonder Girl could get a new origin, power set, haircut, and the new code name, Troya. When they returned to Earth, Dick fired late-season cast edition Danny fucking Chase for being a sociopathic dipshit. Hooray! Also, Beast Boy's stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, forbade his stepson from doing any titansing until such a time as he could get his shit together. Slightly less enthusiastic! Hooray! But before the gang had much of a chance to enjoy their addition by subtraction, Wildebeest returned and attacked Jericho, Raven, and Starfire. When they recovered from these encounters, our ambushed adventurers attempted to contact Cyborg to warn him of their obnoxiously enigmatic adversary's return, but were unable to locate him. The reason for Vic's unexcused absence from superheroics soon became apparent when Wildebeest resumed his attack on the Titans by invading their T-shaped skyscraper. Raven used her magical nonsense powers to knock out the gang's horn-having harasser, but when the Titans pried off the Gnu mask, they were stunned to find that their attacker was actually Cyborg, who was being remote-controlled by a device which had been implanted in his brain by the real Wildebeest. The gang decided that they'd better get someone to carve the doohickey out of their pal's brain. The only problem with this plan was the only people qualified to perform the surgery were the scientists at Star Labs, who they suspected may have been infiltrated by Wildebeest and might have implanted the device in the first place. Fortunately, the gang knew two Star Labs employees who they were pretty sure they could trust. Namely, Vic's aforementioned girlfriend-slash-physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles, and former Titan, Karen Beecher, a.k.a. Bumblebee. Karen and Sarah gave Vic a once-over and determined that if someone didn't give him a doohickey-dectomy pretty soon, he was probably going to die, but unfortunately, they weren't up to the task of performing it. Armed with this knowledge, the Titans confronted the scientist in charge of Vic's maintenance, Dr. Jonathan Brewster. After Raven and Jericho used their respective powers to determine that Brewster was only kind of untrustworthy, the gang decided they could trust him to perform the operation. Bumblebee offered to assist with the surgery, but first she had a plan to find Wildebeest. Using her science skills, Karen had figured out a way to track the signal that was being broadcast into Vic's brain back to its source. Karen followed the signal and led Starfire and Troya to an abandoned tenement building in Manhattan. Seeing a horned silhouette, Starfire rushed in to attack, but what the spicy space princess had assumed was Wildebeest turned out to be an empty costume rigged with explosives. Oh no! 
The costume detonated and the entire building was destroyed in a fiery blast. Meanwhile, back at Star Labs, Dr. Brewster announced that unless he operated on Vic immediately, with or without Bumblebee's assistance, Cyborg would die. Gadzooks! Is this the end of Victor Stone? If Cyborg survives, will things be the same between him and Sarah Charles? And will our heroes manage to thwart Wildebeest's unnecessarily complicated scheme? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... nope. They break up again, but it's implied that they'll probably get back together again, so... Yes, exactly the same. And... yes. But it's implied that his defeat is probably all part of an even more complicated plan that he doesn't even partially explain. <sighs> Troya, Bumblebee, and Starfire managed to survive the fiery blast from the explosives in the Wildebeest costume, because conveniently, one of Donna's new powers is creating a force field that can survive big explosions. Handy, that. Starfire is like, I wonder why Wildebeest lured us out here and tried to explode us. Bumblebee is like, come on, villains are always doing things that are plot convenient but don't actually make any sense. Let's not question it. Everyone agrees that that seems like a wise course of action. Back at Star Labs, everyone is running around and freaking out. Vic is in critical condition, and Dr. Brewster wants to do the surgery right away, but because of the explosion, Bumblebee isn't going to get back in time to assist. Raven and Jericho aren't too stoked about letting the same surgical team that may have shoved an evil gizmo into Vic's brain remove the device without having a titan in the room with them, but they don't have a ton of options right now. Ultimately, the decision is made by Vic's grandparents, Maud and Tucker Stone, who, as his closest relatives, have the final say. They ask Raven if Dr. Brewster can be trusted, and Raven's like, I mean, kinda? My mystical powers are basically telling me, reply hazy, try again. They do that sometimes. The stones give Dr. Brewster the go-ahead to begin the operation. The procedure is a long and complicated one, which gives the rest of the Titans a chance to get to the hospital before the final stages of the surgery. Despite the fact that he's no longer on the active roster, Beast Boy swings by as well. Sarah's feeling really nervous, so Dick has a little chat with her. Sarah's like, My parents didn't want me to date Victor because I was a successful doctor and he was a teenage robot man, but I love him. Dick is like, Yeah, having parents who care about you is such a drag. I totally know what that's like. They watch the final stage of Vic's surgery together from the little glass room above the operating theater. As they're just about to stitch Vic back together, Dick sees something on one of the monitors that makes him go, hmm. Was it his new baby looking like his friend Jay? His guy coming home late smelling like perfume? Fume? No, those are different kinds of things that make you go, hmm. Anyway, the surgery is a success, and Dick decides to file his suspicions away for the time being. The next day, Vic wakes up and is all grumpy. He's understandably crabby that one of the scientists who works on his body might have shoved an evil gizmo into his brain. Fair enough. Sarah's like, I get it. From now on, I will personally supervise any tests that are done on you. Vic is like, nope. I only want Bumblebee to work on me. The Titans are the only ones I can trust. 
Sarah's feelings are hurt, and everyone thinks Vic is being kind of an asshole, but they agree to abide by his wishes. Karen calls her husband Mal, a.k.a. Harold, and lets him know that she's gonna stick around New York for a little longer. Mal is like, Oh, okay. Hey, you're not thinking about going back to being a titan, are you? Karen is like, Ah, uh, look at the time. I should really get going. Talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. Raven pops by and is like, Dick wants to talk to you in the computer room. You seem a little upset. Are you okay? Karen is like, Yeah, it's just relationship stuff. You know how it is. Raven is like, Yes, sure. I know exactly as much about that as Dick knows what it's like to have overprotective parents. They go upstairs and find that the rest of the gang is watching a videotape of Vic's operation. Dick zooms in on the thing he saw on the monitor that gave him pause. It's a blurry outline of a woman's body. You know, the kind you might see if, say, you held down the channel change button as the TV station was stuck on the scrambled porn channel when you were a teenager. Which is a thing that I heard some people did. Karen tries to access the footage from the monitor and finds that even her relatively high security clearance does not allow her to see that file. Hmm. Great, now I'm saying it. Thanks, Dick. And to a lesser extent, CNC Music Factory. Dick is like, hey, I've got a plan. Donna, you know how you now have a whole bunch of new powers that we have never actually enumerated? Donna is like, do I? Let's see. So far, I've demonstrated force fields, flight, super strength, and magic flashlight hands. Dick's like, and those are all great, but I'm thinking about one of your other secret new powers. A short while later, Dr. Brewster bumps into Sarah in the hallway. They hear a strange noise coming from Vic's room and rush to investigate. Sarah is about to push the emergency button to call for security, but Bumblebee shows up and stops her. As he gets nearer to Vic's room, Brewster is alarmed to hear Sarah's voice coming out of the room. And I'm not talking alarmed like he was just talking to her, how could she already be in there already alarmed? More like, oh shit, I'm totally busted alarmed. He opens the door and is greeted to a projected image of Vic and Sarah about to bone down. It is clearly an image he has seen before. Sarah catches up and is like, what the fuck? That's me and Vic boning down. How can we be watching this? Dr. Brewster is like, I don't know. Only me and my science buddies are supposed to have clearance to watch Vic's memory porn. What the fuck, Brewster? Sarah is like, what the fuck, Brewster? Brewster is like, oh, grow up, Sarah. Of course we watch Vic's sexy memories. It's for science. But... None of my horny science buddies who have clearance are here, so I don't understand who's playing this. Suddenly, the image disappears, and Brewster and Sarah find themselves surrounded by the Titans. Donna is like, I was the one playing that scene. It turns out that one of my new abilities is that if I have permission, I can turn my friend's sexy memories into movies. Brewster is like, just the sexy ones? Donna's like, huh. I guess I could probably do other memories, too. Never really occurred to me. Brewster is like, yeah, I hear that. High five. Vic is like, shut the fuck up, you creep. Brewster's like, okay, good point. Dick is like, 
I figured out that Wildebeest wasn't just remote controlling Vic around, he could also read his memories. That's how he knew where to find us and which members of the team to ignore because we were on temporary leave. Then, when I saw what looked like a naked blurry lady on your monitor while you were doing surgery, it all clicked into place. Vic is like, you were watching me porn while you operated on my brain? Brewster is like, it helps me relax. You wouldn't want me slicing around in there while I was all tense, would you? Vic gets so pissed that he passes out. Dick is like, Brewster, we are all tired of your creepy bullshit. Now give us all of your security codes so we can figure out which one of your horny buddies is Wildebeest. Brewster is like, no way. So Beast Boy turns into a bear and threatens to eat him. Hooray! After that, Brewster is much more cooperative. The only problem is, Brewster apparently has a whole lot of horny science buddies. Turns out nearly half the staff at Star Labs has been watching Vic's memory porn. It would take the gang days to check out everyone, and by the time they did, Wildebeest might have time to escape. Fortunately, Dick has another plan. One that doesn't involve having one of his pals using magic powers to make a movie about another one of his pals having sex. Hooray! Later that day, Sarah tries to go talk to Vic, but Starfire intercepts her and is like, sorry, he doesn't want to see anyone from Star Labs right now. That hurts Sarah's feelings and she storms off angrily. Starfire talks to Cyborg and tells him that he's fucking up his relationship, but he doesn't want to hear that right now. Dick comes in and is like, okay guys, let's do that plan thing that I came up with. Vic, I get that it's super dangerous and involves more invasive surgery. You're sure you're cool with that? Vic is like, yup. Later that night, in suburban Long Island, Cyborg Kool-Aid mans his way through the wall of a house that belongs to a red-haired guy we've never seen before. Vic is like, okay, red-haired guy whose name I didn't even bother to learn, I know that you're Wildebeest and I'm here to beat you up. The red-haired guy is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Vic is like, I had them stuff that remote control doohickey back into my brain and then tracked the signal back here. The red-haired guy, who I guess is maybe Wildebeest, is like, that is the stupidest, most dangerous plan I've ever heard. You know, I don't say this often, but maybe Wildebeest has a pretty decent point here. Vic is like, shut up, jerkhole. Possibly Wildebeest is like, touche. Then he pushes a button on his watch, and Vic convulses and passes out. Probably Wildebeest is like, good thing I had a joy buzzer hidden inside of that evil doohickey. He slides open a hidden door behind one of the bookcases and reveals a Wildebeest costume and a high-tech computer room. The computer's monitor shows him that the Titans are hanging out outside waiting for Vic to signal them. Wildebeest gloats to himself and is like, Well, I'm not gonna rig my costume to explode and kill them, because Wildebeest never repeats himself. So I guess I'll stuff Cyborg into this costume and remote control him into attacking his friends. Yeah, that certainly is an original plan that you've definitely never done before. Vic is like, great plan. Wildebeest is like, what? But I just knocked you out. Vic is like, well, you just knocked Victor out. Then Jericho pops out of Vic's body and punches Wildebeest in the face. Hooray! 
Once he does, the rest of the gang rushes in through the Vic-sized hole in the wall. Wildebeest tries to blow them up with a bomb hidden in his costume, but Raven stuffs the booby-trapped Gnu costume into her bird-shaped soul-tummy cocoon, and Donna uses one of her fancy new force fields, and the gang is unharmed. A couple days later, Vic wakes up in a Star Labs hospital room and is informed that the operation to re-remove the device that he had reinserted into his brain was a total success. Vic asks where Wildebeest is, and Dick is like, yeah, his mind turned off as soon as we took him into custody. Weird, huh? Anyway, we'll definitely never have to worry about him again. Vic is glad to hear that definitely true prediction. Yes, when he can go home. Dick is like, you can leave in a couple of days. In the meantime, rest up. I'm going to go take a little time off and deal with some Batman shit. And I just decided that you're the new team leader. Congratulations. The gang says bye to Vic and heads off to their respective homes. As they depart, a familiar horned silhouette perches on a nearby rooftop and laughs, thinking to itself, Those fools. They don't realize this is all part of a needlessly complicated scheme that I'm not going to explain. The End And joining me once again, live and in person, is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm happy to be back here in the comic book room. I see you've changed the decor slightly. Your... what kind of animal is that? A panther? Uh, yeah, it is a bust of a... yeah, let's see a panther. Your big cat has new glasses. Mm -hmm. It used to have some mirrored aviators, and now it's got some stripey glasses yeah there are those like uh new wave glasses you would see often on uh gang members in 80s movies that i don't think anyone outside of that actually wore yep so that's nice mm -hmm. i have some uh lobby cards up from the fish that saved pittsburgh that some friends were able to get for me so that was very nice of them very festive uh-huh and we are enjoying some gifts from some other friends we are finally getting to share the sipping rum an Armagnac cask-aged bourbon that were gifted to us by, respectively, Rick and Rebecca. And, uh, yeah, pretty good time. Pretty darn tasty. So, that stuff is all good. I sang a song to myself earlier today that cracked me up. Would you like to share it? I think I would. I mean, I am known as America's Songbird. It went a little something like this. Gonna bathroom it up, gonna bathroom it down, gonna take my breakfast to toilet town. <laughs> the reason that I share that is that I kind of don't want to talk about this comic book, because I feel like we've talked about this comic book a hundred times already, even though this is the first time we've read this specific one. I'm glad you said that. I was a little bit afraid you'd be like, Corey, what do you think of this comic book? And I would have said what you said, and then you said, oh, really? I enjoyed it. It's like, now I don't even know how to counter that. Yeah, well, you know what? Let's get into it. Let's take this comic book to Toilet Town. Okay. So, yeah, I think we've already kind of covered what we think about this comic book. Not just in the past few minutes, but 
several times throughout the course of covering this series, this is a really frustrating issue for me. Me too. So maybe I'll try a silver lining approach. Okay. Art, pretty good. Art, very good. Consistency. Donna, every issue comes up with some new power that we didn't know she had that saves the day. That's consistent. And Wildebeest, man of mystery. (laughs) A consistent man of mystery. Incapturable, even when he's captured? Yep. I think my overall thoughts on the issue could probably be summed up pretty well by something that was said in the issue, which is, wow, talk about anticlimaxes. Exactly. That and there's a bit, I think it's on page two, that really alarmed me where they're talking about in order to be a bad guy, you just can't make any sense. I kind of got that. Like, not specifically with bad guys, but this mirrors a conversation that I've had a lot of times, which is trying to figure out the logic of people who are not operating logically. I think the example that I use most often and may have used before on the show already, but if this comic book has taught us anything, it's that it's okay to repeat yourself. (laughs) When I was first reading about the Son of Sam murders, where the guy thinks that Satan is talking to him through his dog and telling him to kill people, Mm -hmm. my initial reaction is, well, even if you're taking that as a given, if Satan is telling you to do something, you probably shouldn't listen to him. He's, by all accounts, not a great guy who probably doesn't have your best interests at heart. And then that is when I reach kind of the same conclusion that Karen does, which is, yeah, but once you are at the level where your dog is talking to you and you think Satan is talking to you through him, you're not operating on the same logic that the rest of people are operating under. It's like uh, trying to solve a math problem using dream logic to try to put yourself in the heads of characters who, for the most part, if you reach supervillain status, you probably are not necessarily living in the same consensus reality as everyone else. It's weird, though, because by all accounts, these are incredibly intelligent and successful people with a great deal of resources. Hmm. I guess there are examples in the real world of when people may have lots of resources and appear to be successful, but also aren't playing in the consensus reality pool. Yeah. And there's there's also the phenomenon that I know I've referred to before that the uh, the Ben Carson syndrome, the world's dumbest genius, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or yeah, the guy's a brain surgeon, but also he's a fucking idiot. Weird, weird. Which makes it all the more nonsensical that on the cover of this issue, we get the computerized question, query, wildebeest, friend, or foe? Wouldn't seem like there's a lot of argument to be made on the friend side of things. No, I think because they put it in that 80s future computer font, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be like, hey, wait, did I? Oh, this is a real thinker. Nope. No, it's not. Honestly, my suspicion is that the cover to this issue was drawn a couple issues back when it would have made more sense for this to be the question being asked, especially seeing as on the cover they're looking at side-by-side photos of Cyborg and Wildebeest. So if you had just had the reveal that Cyborg was the Wildebeest, then it would make sense to ask this question. But we kind of put that issue to bed last issue, you know? 
So I think this would have made a lot more sense as the cover to the last issue than this one. Yeah, which is a shame because it is a beautiful cover. Yeah. So do you get... (laughs) So, okay, there was a chip that somebody put in Cyborg's brain Uh at Star Labs that they used to spy on his thoughts, but that's also how Wildebeest was able to mind control him? I guess. They never explain really how that all worked, do they? No, I think there's a lot of hand-wavy science just happening in this issue that doesn't seem to be all that connected to anything. There's a lot of, I don't know, plot-dependent technological leaps that are made at various points. It doesn't really make sense to me that they would need to put the jamming device that had been in his head back in his head in order to turn it on and track Wildebeest down. Also, if they could have done that before, it was operating before when it was in his head. They just took it out this issue. Seems like they could have tracked it that way before. Well, that's on Dick. He watched that surgery take place and he was like, wait a minute, I got an idea, but I'll just let him finish the surgery so we can put it back in later. Okay. Yeah, there were a lot of things that just didn't make sense in terms of the specific technological excuses that were made and some of the other excuses that were made. Like if Cyborg is at the point where he's like, I don't trust anybody who works for Star Labs because they've been using my own memories and thoughts as their little scientist spank bank for a while now. I get that. But the fact that he's like, so that extends to my girlfriend who I've been dating for over a year now because she is a Star Labs employee. I cannot trust her. But I can trust Bumblebee, who is a Star Labs employee, because, like, at least half a decade ago, she was briefly a member of the Teen Titans. It's not even like there's never been a Teen Titan who's betrayed him. We've got the whole Terra situation going on. I don't understand his logic in that. We talk a lot on the show about Cyborg making this, you know, two steps forward, three steps back thing. And Mm -hmm. I feel like with his relationship with Dr. Charles, this is kind of what's happening, where it's like, hey, things are starting to go good and be marginally healthy. Well, let's fuck that up. Yeah, it's very frustrating because we do start to see some glimpses of interesting aspects of their relationship. Frankly, not particularly healthy ones, I don't think. They are now making explicit the age gap between the two, which we had theorized about before and they had briefly mentioned before. But with the solidification of Sarah's career at Star Labs, gotta believe she's at least in her mid-30s at this point, right? Mm -hmm. And he just turned 20 and they've been dating for a year. And we find out that her parents didn't approve of her dating a teenager who was a robot man. And the robot man thing is a little bit specious, but I kind of see their point in, hey, maybe you shouldn't be dating a teenager who is probably almost literally half her age probably especially because he is a recent orphan whose mother died within the past couple of years like there's some weird issues about their relationship that the more you think about it the more like eh, makes me a little uncomfortable mm. you know yeah that being said it is still incredibly frustrating that we just i thought finally resolved that, okay, no, now they have a solid relationship. They're finally moving forward with it. 
after him constantly putting the brakes on it, and now we are back to him putting the brakes on it. I wonder if it is so that they could kind of clear his plate and make his one role be that he is team leader now for a little bit. I don't think it's great if they did do that. Like, he should be allowed to, at this point, be a full character. I mean, he should have been from the start, but now he's an established enough character. He can have more than one thing going on. They didn't have to clear Dick's plate at any point when he became team leader. He was still having problems with Starfire, and that's fine, and he still gets to lead a team. I don't see why they couldn't do that for Cyborg, except there is still kind of the feeling, well, even if he's team leader, he's still not the central character of the book. Yeah, and the way that Dick arrived at that kind of unilateral decision, too, is a little funny. You know, and it's not clear if this is based on any conversation he's had with Donna. Mm -hmm. He states that, well, clearly she needs to go spend time with her husband. Mm -hmm. So she can't lead the team. All right, Borgie, you're up, buddy. Yeah, it seems like if nothing else, he at least should have had a brief chat with both Donna and Vic about this. Drafting somebody into a leadership position is almost never a good idea. It's a bummer and it feels hurried and the whole last third of this comic seems very rushed. It seems like they were going to have maybe a more drawn out story that maybe had a little bit more nuance in it. And then, oh fuck, we're going to have a big crossover with Batman and it starts next issue. We better wrap all this up in the least satisfying way imaginable. The thing too that was the frustrating bookend on it for me was seeing Wildebeest show up again. Like, I, you know, I would have been marginally okay with, okay, they caught him. That was kind of like anticlimactic, but at least that's done now. We can go focus on the next story. And they're like, we caught him, but also there's another wildebeest or who the fuck knows. That seemed really tacked on, even if he had escaped or something. But just like having it happen off panel, like, oh, yeah, after we caught him, um, he immediately his whole mind shut down and now he's in a coma. So problem solved. And then at the end, it was all a dream. Or was it? Wildebeest is back for no particular reason in ways that we're not explaining. And it seems less and less like they have a plan for. I bet that that scientist, that's the Wildebeest guy, who, by the way, have we ever seen the red haired dude before? No. And we don't have a name for him. He has never popped up before. He didn't even appear earlier in this issue. They just show up at his house and, hey, here's a guy with red hair. Turns out he's the wildebeest. And even after they catch him, they don't apparently go to the trouble to find out what his name is. So frustrating. But okay, so apparently they catch this red haired Dr. Wildebeest, Mm -hmm. as I've been calling him. And uh, I suspect what they're going to say happened is he's such a smart doctor scientist that when he got caught, he just like zapped his consciousness into a computer. Oh, that zapped it into another person that has one of them chips could be anybody. Oh, and he no. could just keep doing that. I think we're going to be reading about <laughs> Wildebeest for another 20 issues. Well, if it does happen again, I mean, I think that Wolfman has lost the ability at this point. Hopefully, fingers crossed, because I have thought this before to trick me into trying to kick the football mm. that he is about to pull out at the last minute, like Lucy from Peanuts. I think part of what is happening with Wildebeest and with his recurring appearances, because this follows so specifically the pattern that Wildebeest has, where he shows up, he starts to set in motion a plan that seems to make sense. Then at the last minute, the Titans defeat him, but it turns out he wasn't really defeated. 
And also he has a different plan that he's not going to even drop a hint at what it was that doesn't make any sense. We've seen that, I think, in every appearance from The Wildebeest. It seems to be setting up a more interesting story, and then at the last minute you get a switcheroo, and he's still at large so he can show up at any time and do the same thing over and over again. That's why I was so uncomfortable with that bit of dialogue on page two, where they're just like, hey, bad guy's gonna gonna not make sense, okay? That's why they're bad guys. It's like just giving carte blanche to keep doing this. Yes. It especially seems like it must be a situation where he is fine with not making any sense when he says later in the issue, the wildebeest never repeats the same plan twice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to dress Cyborg up like wildebeest and have him attack his friends. You did that two issues ago. The exact same thing. What a jerk. He doesn't even remember what he did two issues ago. Maybe because he's not the real wildebeest. What a stupid jerk. Yeah. I think part of the problem that they have is that they really have cleared the slate of recurring villains. I mean, I know it's comic books, so it's not a forever thing, but they have at least seemingly tied up the loose ends of the Titans fight with Deathstroke. He's now kind of a good guy, which I don't know exactly how you would spell this. How many middle fingers are in fart noise? Um, At least two. Yeah, just depends how many people are contributing. That's fair. So, Deathstroke is removed as a villain. Mm -hmm. Trigon, dead. He's defeated for good. Mm -hmm. I mean, comic book for good, but still. Yeah. Blackfire, she's kind of off the table. She's running Tamaran and now doing a fairly good job at it. Brother Blood, he's gone. The Brotherhood of Evil, they're done. Every villain, and I think it was time to do this with this character and move on and create new villains, is gone. But... They're not creating new villains except for Wildebeest. He's the only recurring villain we've had since we've cleaned the slate of these guys, except uh, what's-her-face, Lady Ponytail, Godiva. Oh, yeah. I mean, she could show up again. I wasn't crazy about her previous appearances, but it, it seems like, I mean, the title of this issue is Beast of Burden with Beast spelled with two E's. Mm-hmm. So it's like either Wildebeest or maybe... Somebody showed up in a dream on a flaming pie and told Marv Wolfman he should name a title that. Yep. Who do you think would be on the flaming pie? I don't know. There was that Beatles thing where that's allegedly how they got their name. They claimed they had a dream where a guy showed up on a flaming pie and said, you should be the Beatles with an A instead of two E's. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if maybe it was a similar thing. Could be. Probably there's some kind of a flaming pie man who shows up in dreams and tells people how to name things. But the name Beast of Burden is kind of, I think that as a villain, Wildebeest is carrying a pretty heavy load these days in terms of the new Titans. It's a shame that it is always the same load and that we know so little about the character that he's just really uninteresting to me. I think I kind of first lost interest in him when he assembled a team of minor villains and did not call them the Gnu crew. Like, after that, what's even the fucking point of this guy? was a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Did they ever explain what his beef with the Titans is? No. That's another weird thing, right? Like, he's really obsessed with messing with these guys, but only active duty members. Sure. And that was something we discussed before, where I thought we had a workaround that we kind of had to go out of our way to get to in terms of, well, if he's operating through Cyborg, then he's using Cyborg circuitry, and probably he just told him to attack the Titans, and so Cyborg only attacked at active duty Titans. In this issue, no, we find out 
that is not the case. Wildebeest specifically only wants to attack active duty members of the Titans. The rest get let off on technicalities because when you're a supervillain, you don't need to make sense. Exactly. And it's just so dumb. It's yeah. so dumb. If you want to hurt people, you have to hurt people that people care about. It doesn't matter if they're active duty or not. Yeah. Ugh, he's a bad supervillain. <laughs> he really is. You mentioned Donna getting new powers that she gets to use every episode. Yeah. I kind of enjoy that being a recurring theme. It's really dumb, but it kind of reminds me of like at the end of he every He-Man episode, he just like He-Man has to pause and give a little message about the importance of brushing your teeth or whatever. It kind of has that same vibe to it. I don't know. I feel like Dick is just that's becoming a crutch for him. He's like, wait a minute. Hey, Donna, <laughs> I bet you can do this. Well, maybe that's why he's taking a break for a few issues from being team leader. He's like, oh, she's going to run out of new powers eventually. I don't want to be here for that. No, sir. That's on Cyborg now. <laughs> the big revelation I think we're supposed to get in this issue is that Doc Brewster and his science buddies have been using Vic's memories and thoughts to basically watch porn. Like, they're using his memories and thoughts as their version of tiny little flame ghosts. And that is so goddamn disturbing. Yeah, and that it's couched in the... Well, it's uh, research. It's... Yeah, totally. It's even more creepy, though, when you look at the fact that, like, clearly he immediately recognized the memory of Vic having sex with Sarah. And is like, oh, shit. Like, the look on his face where he's like, oh, they found my porn. Mm -hmm. That is his colleague, too, who he's known for a long time. That may, Like, it, it's, it's so creepy already, and then taking it to that extra level of creepiness and really undercuts the fact that both Raven and Jericho are like, he seems pretty trustworthy and like he's a good guy. Bad job. Bad job all around. Yeah. No, it's creepy, and there's so much in there, too, with these layers of the power dynamic where this is the person that's the doctor that's doing the surgery on you yeah. that's in charge of all the passwords like it just gets grosser the more you think about it mm -hmm. so i want to make sure that i understand what dick's plan was to capture dr wildebeest okay okay it was Put the chip back in Cyborg's head, use that to track Dr. Wildebeest to his Long Island hideout, uh -huh. but make sure that Cyborg is sedated, but is being driven by Joey, uh -huh. and then show up at Dr. Wildebeest's house, and then expect that uh, Joey's going to pop out right. and punch Dr. Wildebeest and capture him. But what happened was then Dr. Wildebeest is like, fuck that. I'm going to blow everything up. And then Donna made the shield around them and Raven's soul self ate the bomb and then they took him to jail. Yeah, pretty straightforward plan. Okay, <laughs> making sure I didn't. Yeah, I don't think you missed anything there. That does seem to be what the plan kind of was. Joey's powers, again, are a source of mild confusion to me. I had somebody write in and actually clarify that he can take over people's bodies if they are unconscious, 
or if he makes eye contact with them. So I don't know if he has to make eye contact with the unconscious person. Like if he has to just like pry their eyeballs open and then jump inside that way. It did make it really funny to me when Wildebeest like closed his eyes real tight. <laughs> was like, can't, can't possess me, can't possess me. It made me think like, why doesn't he just hit him over the head at that point and then jump inside him? Yeah. Like, there's so much of that that didn't really make sense to me, but that did make for an inadvertently, I think, funny scene to me. It was funny. And the other thing that cracked me up about that was I couldn't tell if it was just Beast Boy being his usual stupid self and making a dumb joke that didn't make any sense, or if there really was a code word for the Titans to attack, which was whammo, which is the noise that Joey makes through Cyborg's mouth when he punches Dr. Wildebeest. I believe that that is likely Beast Boy making a little joke there. Speaking of Beast Boy jokes, he says a turn of phrase that I didn't really get. Maybe you got it. I think it's him just not understanding how humor works again. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's after Cyborg wakes up and he's in his little green monkey body. He says, I'm really going to ride on him now. Yeah, I th- I think he, he was like, yeah, I'm going to make fun of him. No. That's that's what I figured. But yeah. nobody that's not a you don't say ride on people, right? I don't think so. Like they're a little pony. No. Maybe he had just been listening to the parliament song Ride On, which is a great song. No, it ain't what you know, it's what you feel. The ACDC song. Oh, no, no, that's a What's that song? Isn't that Ride On also? How's that go? Oh, I'm not going to sing. Okay, well, then I'll never know how it goes. It's too bad. It is. So, overall, I think that Sarah comes across as a pretty sympathetic character in this book, for the most part. There are aspects of her relationship with Vic that I'm not totally comfortable with, but... Overall, she is, I think, supposed to be seen, and rightly so, as a slighted character in this, with Victor's caprice about whether or not he wants to date her again coming to the forefront. But she did say something that I frankly took a little bit of offense at, and that is when she is talking about why she wanted to date Victor, despite her parents' objections. She says that they didn't like that he was so young and that he was a robot man, They wanted her to date someone more human. And then she says, but he's the most human person in the world. The most human person I can imagine. Um, hello. We are the most human people from Earth. Come on, Sarah. Yeah, I gave her a pass because she didn't say from Earth. No, I mean, who could be more human than us? Nobody. I can't imagine that anybody could be. We are human men from Earth, of course. It's established. It is. So, uh... Sorry, Sarah. You get put in a dunk tank? Do we have do we have a thing we do to people characters that we're mad at? I like the dunk tank idea. Okay. Sorry, Sarah. You go in the dunk tank. We need a sound effect Whoosh. for that. Yeah, there we go. Say that again. Whoosh. Yeah. It's a dunk tank noise. That's right? a good noise. That's what it, oh wait, 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 it's wait. A splash sound. Oh, that's for switcheroos. I forgot. Uh, can he just whistle it in a more dunk tanky way? Okay. Like a splash. (laughs) Yep. Okay, there we go. That's what a dunk tank sounds like, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 It's been a while since I've been to a dunk tank, but I think they sound like that. So take that, Dr. Sarah Charles. 
uh, such a human response. Uh-huh. I was kind of surprised to see Beast Boy's appearance in this issue. They had been playing it fairly straight with the he's not allowed to associate with the Titans anymore, mm-hmm. or if he is, he's only allowed to hang out at bedside tables and look at unconscious people. He's not allowed to go on missions. This issue, he does both. And then he said something at the end of the issue that took me aback a little bit. He says that, uh, I better get home, or Dayton will put me in the torture chamber again. And I get that he's making a joke about his dad being a little bit draconian. Mm-hmm. But I would think after you have had multiple stepfathers, including this one, literally try to torture or kill you, maybe when he says something like that, the rest of the team should be like, are you okay? Do we need to look into this? Something along those lines. That would have been nice to see. Because, yeah, not only did his last, I think, two step-parents try to kill him, this step-parent tried to kill him pretty recently. Yes, but keep in mind, this is Beast Boy we're talking about. They They just don't care. No, it's not even that they don't care. They would care if they listened, but when... Uh, I feel like when he talks, it's just Charlie Brown noises. They just tune him out and... Stupid joke. That's fair. Creepy, creepy. And overall, you're right. I think that probably is the best policy for dealing with Beast Boy. Mm -hmm. It's a shame. I like that Tom Grummet draws him with hairy forearms. I think that's a nice character touch. Not everybody seems to do that, but I think it's a nice way of leaning into his powers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the art crew on this. Has Grummet been on the previous issues? He was on the the last one, and he was one of the artists that was in the Secret Origins issue. And I think the last issue had the same breakdown as this does, where George Perez does the layouts, really just like almost like storyboarding with, I think, stick figure type things. It's like, hey, here's how this panel should be shaped. This is where all the panels go. And then Grummet does the pencils, like the finished pencils. And then Bob McCloud does the inks. It's interesting. Like, you can tell it's not Perez, but it does seem like they're trying to honor his style, especially Mm -hmm. with the scenes where there's a lot of technology. And I guess the perspective comes from the layouts that he does. But it it does really remind me of Perez. It's just not it's just not quite the same. It's not quite the same, but I will say this is probably the closest we've seen. Mm -hmm. No, it's really good. It is. I've, I've been enjoying it. We talked a little bit about Vic and Sarah's age difference, and we speculated Probably she's mid-30s or something. Uh-huh. There's one line that gave me pause and made me wonder if maybe she is significantly older than that. And that is when Vic wakes up in his bed and she says, Oh, he's just being glum. Glum is like a calling hamburgers hamburger sandwiches type of word. I kind of have difficulty imagining anybody under 60 using the word glum. Yeah, that's a good point. I usually pass that stuff off as, oh yeah, the 80s probably just had a different vocabulary, <laughs> but you're right. I, I feel like that's maybe just because it rhymes with chum, but it seems <laughs> like a really old-timey word like chum. It would be maybe a little bit more glaring as maybe be speaking to an age difference if Cyborg didn't later use the word louse to describe Wildebeest. I had been hanging out with Sarah Charles. And Beast Boy, because a lot of Beast Boy's references in this issue, he makes a lot of his standard just like, well, you're supposed to be 15 years old in 1989. Mm -hmm. Why are you quoting like old movies? He does like a Groucho Marx reference in this and a couple of like Bugs Bunny references. Jimmy Stewart's his idol. 
Oh, well, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. There are character reasons that could explain why Beast Boy acts that way. I wish there had been a little bit more development of that. We know that his mom was an actor in older films, so maybe he like tries to identify that. Maybe he watches a lot of older movies. We get hints at that, but it's never really spelled out. And that is one thing that I wish maybe was made a little bit more explicit so we're not left to assume the way that I mostly have with him that everyone's frame of reference in this book is Wolfman's frame of reference from when he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Well, Corey, there's a bunch more to talk about about this issue. Probably, frankly, I'm surprised we found this much already. <laughs> is, is there? I mean, there is, but we've already done it before in the previous four or five issues that were exactly like this. Oh, that's true. That being said, you ready to move into the minutiae? Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, which category do you feel like starting us off with? Let's talk about the good news. Let's start with uh, art, the panels. Okay. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Despite Beast Boy being Beast Boy, I think one of my favorite panels was on page 15, and I called it Bear Scare. Mm, the Bear Scare was pretty fucking sweet. Yeah. That evil scientist. I'm going to go ahead and call him evil because he's a creep. Yeah, I think he's evil. I don't think we're supposed to think that he's evil, but he's evil. Yeah, no, you don't. Peeping Tom, people's memories, and not yeah. be a little bit evil. That's. I guess there's curiosity, but that's too much. No, you can leave it at, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, Beast Boy scares the evil scientist by being a big menacing green bear with, mm -hmm. uh, I forget how many teeth, but lots of teeth. Lots of teeth that are apparently size 14 teeth, mm -hmm. which I don't believe they measure teeth that way, but... There's a lot about orthodonty I'm unfamiliar with. So yeah, page 15, Bear Scare. Bear Scare is pretty great. I also like in that panel, he makes his, as he is menacing somebody, he makes a Bugs Bunny reference where he says, you don't know me very well, do you? I thought that was cute. I liked that panel a lot. I think my favorite panel is on page 13, the panel that I call, oh shit, they found my Vic porn. It is the expression on the evil doctor's face when he recognizes, because he recognizes immediately the specific scene of Vic's, I gotta believe one of his probably relatively few sexual encounters with Sarah, given how frequently they have broken up. Mm -hmm. But he recognizes immediately what the scene is and like, oh shit, oh shit. And yeah, the look on his face, he looks so like, oh shit, I'm busted in that scene. It was really, really well done. It was, and his expression also is, is drawn differently than the way that normally surprise is rendered as your eyebrows are raised and your, your eyeballs are real big. Mm -hmm. It looked almost like the eyelids on the bottom part of his eye were like drooping down. Like he was just deflated, like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, it was almost like you could almost hear him audibly saying the word gulp. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. Uh, I just thought that was a really nicely done panel. The other one that is in contention for me is I hate that it ends the issue. I hate what it represents. But that last panel of Wildebeest crouching where he's in silhouette in front of the cityscape, it is very, very nicely drawn, even if it is doing something I wish that it didn't do. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a silhouette skyline. 
I think that was one of our favorites last time. Yeah. Too, from the beginning. Oh, it's weird. Yeah. It's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> Wildebeest Day. <laughs> I mean, I would like to think that if they were to make a Wildebeest movie, they would at least have the good sense to call it Gnu Day. Like a brand Gnu Day. They should call it brand a Gnu Day. Brand... A brand Gnu oh. Day. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? I only found one. I'm not sure if it was due to me just being unobservant or irritated, but it was at the end where Wildebeest calls everybody, you fools. Yep. I noted that one as well. He says it very flat which I think sometimes works better as an insult if you use a period instead of an exclamation point. Like, I'm not even pissed about this. This is not an emotional decision that I'm making. I am just observing that you are, in fact, fools. I thought that was fine. I did find a couple of others. We have, speaking of louses, what about that wildebeest? Which Cyborg says. Pretty good implying that both Wildebeest and the evil doctor are louses. Mm. Which I think is a fair, if harsh, characterization. That's like an insect that, uh, that eats your body, right? Yeah. Lice is the plural of louse, I believe. Gross. Yeah. And also when he calls the doctor a lousy peeping Tom. I mean, I would maybe argue he's a great peeping Tom. <laughs> but I understand the context there. Have you ever seen the movie Peeping Tom? Uh, no. It's really good. It's super creepy. It came out, I think, a little bit before Psycho and has a kind of similar vibe to it. It's a British film. You should check it out. I don't enjoy the feeling of being creeped out. Hmm. I can understand that. I don't generally either, but it is a very effective horror movie. You know, I think we've talked about this on the show before. I'm always impressed when a movie can do that, like generate mm -hmm. those, those feelings. And yeah, yeah, I get why people like it makes you feel more alive, yada, yada, because it's not happening to you, but sure. I'm a grown man. And after I watched that, uh, Australian scary movie about grief, the Babadook. Oh, see, I still haven't seen that. I had to go turn on the lights in my apartment, <laughs> sit on the couch and make some tea. That's fair. I'm like, man, I'm too old for this. shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, no, I it is it is interesting to reach a point where it's just like it is impressive that that movie can make me afraid, but I do not like being scared. Exactly, it it is an unpleasant emotion that I do not wish to experience. Like you've you've talked about that with your dislike for the genre, right? Best case, you're scared. Yeah, yeah. Worst case, you're bored. <laughs> yeah, there's really it's a, it's kind of a no win situation. But I will say the movie Peeping Tom is very good. Okay. Sartorially speaking, which fashion in this issue do you want to talk about? Two things stood out to me, like there wasn't a ton of new stuff. Maybe three things, okay. First is, I liked Beast Boy's not Hawaiian shirt, but kind of Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, it's a Hawaiian style shirt, but it just kind of has a pretty standard floral print on it, I think. But like, geometric, it looked like large magenta pieces of cat food. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> 
Like the hard kind. <laughs> right, well, obviously. God, if it was magenta wet cat food, that would be such a gross-looking shirt. <laughs> and a gross-looking cat food. Yeah. So there's that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is I liked that all of the scientists had their own, like, flair of laser goggles. Yeah. I like that they get to bring their own laser goggles from home. Mm -hmm. Some of them seemed like they had maybe just been at a tanning bed and kept some of those. Most of them had some kind of like a new wave kind of look for their laser goggles. You would think that Star Labs would have just a standard laser goggle that they hand out before your surgery, but no. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I noted both of those things. There was also a scene, I think it was on page eight. And I just called it turtlenecks for all because <laughs> everybody is wearing some very thick turtlenecks. And it is also one of the first times I must have known this at some point, but there's something about maybe seeing him next to the other characters that have this going on where you realize how much of a turtleneck Jericho's costume has. Like maybe the mutton chops were detracting from it before, but it looks like almost a warp level of aggressively uncircumcised turtleneck (laughs) that he just has kind of like flopped down around his neck, but there's a lot of wrinkles in it once it is. After you said aggressively uncircumcised, I didn't hear anything else. (laughs) But you also see Dr. Sarah Charles has a very high turtleneck going on on her purple sweater that is under her lab coat. And Terry Long is wearing a very, very thick white turtleneck sweater under his tan jacket they're like dueling leonard nimoy's from the 70s Mm, mm. dueling sagan's maybe dueling carl sagan's Mm -hmm. any other fashion we get to see uh maudie and harold that's their names right or did i just conflate that with the movie i think the weird age difference I think you did. I think you're thinking of Harold and Maude. It is Maudie and Tucker, I believe. Ah, Yeah, it's definitely Tucker. Okay. I didn't question it at first. I was like, yeah, Harold and Maude, those are uh, Vic's grandparents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think his grandparents are about the same age. Yeah. Yeah, no, one of the other things I noticed was uh, Tucker, even in his ripe old age, can rock a pair of tight green jeans. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that, too. I didn't bring it up because I think it's the same outfits we've seen them both wearing before. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a good look. Yeah, green jeans. Yeah, green jeans with a yellow plaid shirt. Mm-hmm. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? Again, starting with the good news, let's go with my Aqualad, and I went with Starfire. Mm. She showed restraint, where she was like, I am going to fucking kill this dude, because he made me think I killed a dude. (laughs) Right. With Dr. Uh, Wildebeest, but she didn't. Which, eh, I guess was good. Either way. (laughs) And also, she was... A good friend to Cyborg and was put in a really shitty position where he's like, I don't want Sarah to even come in this room. And Sarah knocks on the door and is like, I want to see this man that I love. And Starfire's like, uh, he doesn't want to see you. Sorry. Super awkward, but honored his wishes and then Mm -hmm. goes back and is like, yo, Vic, don't fuck this up. Yeah, I think you're making a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's a good friend, right? Like, do the shitty thing, but then come back and also do the equally uncomfortable thing of tell you that 
they think you're doing a bad job. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid choice. I actually went with Beast Boy. I think he did a good job with his bear threats. I enjoyed that. He was stealing his material from Bugs Bunny, but, uh, you know, tried and true source, it, it worked for me when he did. And uh, just overall, I thought he did a pretty good job. He showed up for his pals, and he made good threats. And he didn't really creep me out at any point. I mean, granted, it's a pretty high bar for creeping me out being set in this issue by uh, Dr. Feelbad, but... That's true. But still, I thought Beast Boy did a pretty good job. Conversely, for my Beast Boy, I had Nightwing. Hmm. His plan didn't make a lick of sense, even though it did, I guess, work. And leadership needs to be voluntary. Yeah, Nightwing was a strong contender for me, too. I just haven't seen Beast Boy in so long. I kind of missed him, <laughs> and so I gave him the nod. He didn't really do anything bad. I mean, he was, like the monkey thing was kind of annoying. Sure. Okay. Good job with the bear, but I guess I didn't like that he said he was going to ride on Vic. Fair enough. I did have one other reason for giving the nod to Dick, actually. Hmm. Let Vic say ass. He's a grown man. He's in the fucking hospital. You think that was Nightwing that cut him off? I think it was. He was the one who was having the chat with him at the time. I think he has his right to express his displeasure in swear words if he wants to. The doctor wants him to stick around for further tests. And he says, for what? You want to stick another camera up my... And then Nightwing cuts him off and says, Vic, don't say your own ass. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's fair. Nightwing is a huge prude. <laughs> he is boring how you end up a prude when you grew up in the goddamn circus is this a is this a, like an alex p keaton situation where he's got liberal parents so he's rebelling by being a conservative it is it is okay. nightwing is a real alex p keaton he sure is <laughs> but alex p keaton you let Vic say the word ass if he wants to he is a grown man yeah sounds like nightwing earned himself a trip to It's the dunk the tank. Dunk tank. <laughs> That's the worst dunk tank. It sounds just like a dunk tank, and you know it. Okay. Corey, what timestamps were you able to find in this issue? I don't know. Maybe I missed them, but I just went with the one that stood out to me, which was the choice of the font on the cover to represent that this is a high-tech thing. Ah, which is that old timey, gosh, I don't know the history of it, but you know that computer font where it's all kind of square and some parts of letters are bigger than others? Mm -hmm. Like almost it was punched out of a like a computer punch card or something. It was, yeah, it's like, oh, this is super high tech. But when you see it now, you're just like, oh, that's super old tech. Yeah, I love retro futurist shit. And this is a fairly subtle example of it. But I do like that, too. Yeah, I had a couple that were in the issue. I mean, I think the most obvious one is when Beast Boy says that if he can't rejoin the Titans until he gets a B average, he's going to be grounded till 1999. So you get an actual date timestamp on that. At that time, 1999 was a good decade away. So there's that. And we get another shot of, I believe, the, the red-haired gentleman who may or may not be Wildebeest has a clock radio. Oh, man. Yeah. Those were all the rage. Yeah. I certainly had one. Mm -hmm. 
I had an even for the time an older one where it wasn't digital. It was the like the numbers the flipped over. Kind? Yeah, yeah. I, I dug that. Yeah, I like those flippy numbers. Yeah, flippy numbers pretty good. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite SoundCloud rappers. Flippy numbers. Yeah, I had a, a clock radio that I used all through high school to wake me up, and I still remember I woke up early for school one day, and um, it was advertising Spanish lessons that you could send away for that used like mnemonic tricks to teach you. Oh. And the woman on the ad said, spell socks. And I was like, S-O-C-K-S. And she's like, S-O-C-K-S. That's how it is. That's how oh, you say it. That's how it. Very nice. It's stuck in my head. My favorite thing like that is that that's how you do a good impression of Michael Caine is to use the possessive for cocaine. That's my cocaine. <laughs> that's how Michael Caine would say his own name. My cocaine. That's funny. Corey, I think it's time we had ourselves a Battle of the Band Names. That was so loud. Yeah, it's been a while since you've been in the same room for it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? Oh, man. I got two that are just other ends of the spectrum. Ooh, let's uh, see what... Colors you were able to bring to play with these bandular names. Okay. The first one is probably like a very dark kind of uh, horror metal. And they are... Like uh, Misfits style? Yeah, but probably more like metally and, and less punky, I'm okay. guessing. Or maybe somewhere in between. I don't know. Nobody really knows. Hmm. They're hard to pin down. Sure. But they're in uh, Interminable Terror. Interminable terror. Mm-hmm. Hard to say, but you know, gets the point. Yeah, across. do they have like really long songs? No, I think they're all like a minute long. Oh, real? So the interminable is ironic. They might not know that it's like a temporal expression. <laughs> it just ah, sounds good. Gotcha. I think that's a pretty solid band name. I had for one of mine, Tangible Shroud. <laughs> They're a high school band. Uh Uh-huh. You know, they mean well. They met in... They try hard. They don't actually try very hard, but they do mean well. Okay. And yeah, Tangible Shroud, they just think it sounds like deep and pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're they're trying their hardest to sound like Third Eye Blind. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, not a great band, but I think a pretty convincing band name. Yeah. Well, you know, 90s music, the kids like that. Oh, sure. They do. My niece is a teenager, and she really likes 90s music. Mm -hmm. Kind of across the board, kind of in the same way that you'll see a bill that's for a touring, like, 90s nostalgia act that's like, it's Sugar Ray and Corn, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's like, yeah, you know, 90s music. Right. Speaking of Corn, I think my other band name is probably a new metal band. They are called Method of Operation. Mm. But they do new metal that is specifically in favor of the dairy industry because it's moo method of operation. So they're like kind of like system of a down sounding, but mostly about songs about cheese and milk products. Oh, no. Yeah, they're pretty great. Uh huh. I got one that you would actually want to see. What? Yeah, it's highly unorthodox. Yeah. Oh, man. These guys are a cover band. 
and they just pick the creme de la creme of uh, danceable funk tunes. Okay. We got your hot chocolate. We got sure. your peaches and herb. We got your P-Funk. We got everything. Okay. Tower of power. You know, don't worry about it. And these guys are called Time to Boogie. Fair enough. They're, uh, they're a bar band, right? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Lo- local bar band. Uh-huh. Just playing the funk hits. Are they from New Hampshire? <laughs> Where else? <laughs> Where else would a funk band be from? A funk bar band? Yeah. I-, I think many of them are from New Hampshire. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a pretty good one. Thank you. Of our four options, which band do you think has the best name? Oh, boy. Let's run through them again. So. Tangible Shroud. Tangible Shroud. <laughs> okay. And then uh, Interminable Terror. Okay. And Method of Operation. Method of Operation. And then Time to Boogie. <laughs> All right. Oof. lot of options there. I'm leaning, I think, maybe a little bit towards the band that I would maybe least like to see, which is Tangible Shroud. I kind of like I the like name. Tangible Shroud, too. Yeah. I, I like thinking of those, those kids. <laughs> okay, 90s tribute act, Tangible Shroud. All right. That's our choice. We'll run it up on the Twitter poll and see how it does. Corey, who was your president of the drama club this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? I think if you shut your eyes real hard <laughs> to tune out the world, I think if you blow up your own house to make a point, mm. that's pretty dramatic. So I gave it to ostensibly Dr. Wildebeest. Okay, I think that is a very solid choice. I went with Cyborg. Now, I know he has a lot to be dramatic about, and generally that would be a reason why I would lean away from the character who's going through it the hardest. Mm -hmm. But when Sarah Sims comes in for a visit and she says, hey, the children that you work with send their love to you. He says, hey, tell them I send it back. And he's like, no, wait, I'll be bad for my image. (laughs) I think being concerned that expressing gratitude to children who are concerned about you would mess with your reputation is a very dramatic move. Oh, Hub, I think you read too much into it. I read that as him trying to make a joke because he was in a bad situation, like to put Sarah at ease by making a joke about being concerned about his image. Maybe. I think he was just saying like, no, don't tell the don't tell children I care about them. I need to look tough. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they won't think I'm cool. Yeah. (laughs) And I want those children to think I'm so cool. (laughs) I think that is... uh, (laughs) That's uh, not ridiculous. No, it's a relatable emotion, but I think a dramatic one at that. Oh, true. So that's why Cyborg was my choice. Okay. Although I think, yes, Wildebeest is a pretty solid option. Especially when you consider that He's upset that his dog is barking at the beginning and he gets out a gun. He's like, oh, that that dog's causing a ruckus. And then he gets out a gun. Is he going to threaten his dog with a gun? Because after he's like, no, that's the Titans. He already has the gun in his hand. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing because he goes from first it's the dog to then, oh, somebody's breaking in. Right. So I'm going to shoot but him. But right by, by the time he has the realization that he thinks someone is breaking in, he already has the gun in his hand. Mm-hmm. So, that's not a good dog owner. 
No, no, it's it's overly dramatic. I mean, I didn't read that like Monks of the New School book. I know that you did. Does it have anything about uh New Skeet? Oh, Monks of the New Skeet? Yeah, Monks of the New School is a uh, <laughs> Oakland <laughs> hip-hop collection. Oh, fair enough. Is it New Skeet? Skeet, S-K-E-E-T. Was this book by Will Wayne? <laughs> no. <laughs> is he a quality dog trainer? I don't know how to answer that question, but uh, these guys were not, they have nothing to do with Lil Wayne. Okay. Did they have any advice about threatening your dog with firearms? I know the dominance is a big thing in those books, right? Yeah, no, they tell you how to how to hit your dog in the face, but not how to... That's um, fucked up, man! Yeah, yeah, you have to look them in the eyes and do it under the chin so they know what's coming from you. That is... I disapprove! Because if you whack them on the top of the head, then they don't know that you're hitting them and they're just scared. Lil Wayne has no business teaching people how to train dogs that way. That may be true also. That is some garbage. Ironically, that book was called How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend. That is not how you be a friend to anyone. Look look him in the eye and smack him under the chin. No. Okay, that is pretty funny. No. But I don't think that's a good friend. Man, monks aren't particularly known for being, like, good with people, I don't think. It's, it's, it's like living in a hermit dorm, right? Is that what being a monk is oh, like? Oh, that's ironic. Yeah. Mm. I don't have time to get into it, but after the show, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about ornamental hermits, because it is a whole thing. What? Ornamental hermits. Okay, fuck it. We're, we're going in now. <laughs> I only found out about these recently. Ornamental hermits uh-huh. were people that in, like, the 1700s, rich dudes would hire to live in their garden as a hermit. Why? Because they thought it looked cool. They would, like, have ruins built, like, fake ruins, and they would hire somebody to live in their garden as a hermit. And so, like, people would come over, and they'd be like, eh, and this is my hermit? I got a hermit. So what you're saying is uh, people have always been assholes. Yes. Okay. But also, dream job. <laughs> Do you have to interact though? Like, like they're like, "Hey, this is my hermit," and you just be like, "Hey, <laughs> hey, I'm deep." I think that was kind of like it. Like, some of them would expect you to like have wisdom or whatever, but you didn't have to have any wisdom. You just had to hermit it up. Mm-hmm. It's like not shave your face. Yeah, you you don't shave. You have beard probably, and then you like uh, you just live in some rich dude's garden and get paid to not talk to people. Probably feed you. Yeah, you read books. Totally. I mean, doesn't that sound pretty sweet? I love gardens. I love books. Yeah. I like people feeding me food. (laughs) It's the best. (laughs) If you need an ornamental hermit. (laughs) Seriously, if you're hiring ornamental hermits, we can take like a couple hours off a week to record the show. Two for one. Yeah. We'll we'll take turns. Double hermit. We'll share a hermit shift. Ah. There were reports that, like, there was at least one dude who got fired in his first week because he kept just going down to the pub and sneaking off. He had hired on for a seven-year contract as a hermit, and he got fired in the first week because he just kept going to the pub. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's ornamental hermits. All right. You know what we haven't done in a while, Corey? No. Is there a Sylvester Stallone movie that this comic book reminds you of no oh wait yeah oh what you got the last god is it rambo is that the franchise where it's the really really bad one 
Yeah, it was the one that I didn't see it. You told me not to see it. Yeah, don't fucking do it. It's gross and stupid. It's like Rambo Last Blood, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This comic's not that bad, but also it's the worst Sylvester Stallone movie that I can think of. So Okay. I'm going to go with that. Okay, I'm going to go with a movie that I haven't seen, but The Expendables 3. Because I feel like it's probably retreading this a lot of the same ground that the first two Expendables covered, and uh, just kind of unnecessary. Mm. Like, okay, we get the point. Mm -hmm. Although, Expendables 3, I think, has Frasier in it. What? Which does make me a little bit want to see it. All right, well, movie so, night. This book doesn't have Fraser in it. So I guess you're right. It's Rambo Last Blood. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Corey, I have one final question I have to ask you. All right. In the relatively arbitrarily determined year of our Lord, 1990, and the month of our Lord, September, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot. Oh boy, Aqualad was getting his learn on. Ooh. He spent a solid 11 hours glued to PBS between September 23rd and 27th watching Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. Oh, nice. Yeah. It initially started, he had some laundry to fold. Sure. <laughs> He's like, oh, you know, I like <laughs> to put on my PBS, fold my laundry. Mm -hmm. Man, sucked in. He loved it. He learned so much. Like a lot of people, that was their primary way of learning about that part of uh, American history. I guess his only complaint was didn't really touch on slavery as the cause for the yeah. war quite as much as he you, thought it should have. You'd think that might have come up a little more. Mm -hmm. Other than that, he was along with the 14 million other viewers that made that probably the most popular show on PBS ever. And uh, just watched it. Yeah, so he was glued to the screen, watching it pan around on a still photograph while a violin and a flute played. Yeah, something like that. Old-timey. Pretty good. Yeah, so just getting his learn on. Well, that was one thing that he was up to. The other thing that he was up to was, well, frankly, making a little bit of a mistake, but uh, a well-intentioned one. Because he devoted a lot of his September to trying to get a 64-year-old comic book artist recognized by the UN as an independent nation. <laughs> See, there's a comic book artist named Russ Heath who did a lot of war comics for DC back in the day, in the golden and silver age of comic books. He was still a working comic book artist in 1990. Did a couple of titles for Epic at the time, I believe. And, uh... Aqualad heard that the UN was going to have Liechtenstein become a member. And he was like, that is bullshit. Because Roy Liechtenstein ripped off Russ Heath's art and turned it into those blow-up panels that hung in museums around the world. He got $4 million for one painting that he explicitly ripped off from Russ Heath. I believe it was called Wham! Something like that. It was, it was named after a sound effect. But it, it's just a Russ Heath panel that he then blew up and changed the coloring on and got $4 million for. You know what Russ Heath got for that? Nothing. Nothing. Jack shit. He got an invite to the museum that it was hanging in, and he couldn't even go to that because he had deadlines because he was behind on rent. So 
Aqualad makes a very impassioned speech, and the UN was about to recognize Russ Heath as an independent nation and member of the UN. And Russ Heath was like, I'm sorry, I don't have time to be a country. I've still got to make deadlines. And the UN was like, well, uh, we'll go along with it. We like Aqualad a lot, and he makes a lot of very good points. Uh, this Roy Lichtenstein seems like a real dickhole, although I do like his sculptures. <laughs> but we were actually just going to have the country Lichtenstein join as a member. And Aqualad was like, oh, that's different. He felt a little bit bad about it, but not too bad because it did get more attention to Russ Heath. Good for you, Aqualad. Damn. Yeah. Fuck Roy Lichtenstein. Damn. Yeah. Four million dollars. What kind of asshole pays four million dollars for a blown up thing? I don't know. He did five different paintings that were from Russ Heath's art. Mm. And then a bunch that were from other comic book artists because comic books aren't real art. But you blow it up and you put it in the gallery, then it's art. I understand he's making a point about that, but you kick something down to those artists you're ripping off. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Corey. I had a nice time chatting with you about this comic book that was really frustrating, but it was nice to nice to get that out in the air, you know. Yeah, I feel uh, better. Yeah, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Not technically true. Handy phrase, but uh, a bleach is up there, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Don't actually try to disinfect things with sunlight. Mm-mm. A lot, lot of times that's not going to work out great for you. Also be careful with bleach. Yeah, that's good advice for mm-hmm. us all. Yeah, don't drink it. No, don't drink. Corey, why would, are people out there drinking bleach? I don't know. There was a song about it once. Oh, there was that Public Enemy song. They perpetrate and drink Clorox. Attack the black because I know they lack exact the cold facts, but still they try to Xerox. Oh, no, I was thinking of the dead milkman. We're so bored we're drinking bleach, but... Oh, jeez. Either way. Yeah. Okay, public service announcement. Don't drink bleach. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, if you would like to get into touch with us... <laughs> You can uh, send us an electronic mail, as this is the future, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or we can be reached via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. You can also find us on the interwebs sometimes. We're uh, up there on the socials media, saying a thing, doing a thing. You know, feeling the groove, making it work. Yeah, that's mostly what we're doing. And hey, if you can't find us there, there is one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I'm going to be working on a a recipe. It's like uh, you add flour and sugar and eggs and flavorings. And then it makes a pudding on the bottom with a crust on the top. Oh, like the crust floats up. Wait, what? When you, when you bake it. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's crust on the bottom, pudding on the top, and then the crust floats to the no, top. No, you just mix it all together, and then you bake it, and the crust like floats to the top, and the bottom makes like a, a pudding. You're blowing my mind, Corey. It's amazing. Well, that that's going to be an exciting time in people's hearts this week. Yeah, it's going to smell like baked lemon cake. That sounds pretty good. I got I got a, a pretty sweet lineup of baked goods coming my way. Tomorrow, as you know, is my birthday. Yay! You brought over some baked goods. My mom dropped off some coffee cake for me to have tomorrow. Lisa got a cake, so I'm, I'm going to be eating some fucking baked goods in people's hearts. Also, 
I got a birthday card from a listener who remembered that this was the time of year I announced that it was my birthday last year. Didn't have the exact date, but knew it was sometime in April. And so I'm going to, I haven't opened this card yet. I'm going to. It is from uh, Chris J in Houston. I think it's the same oh, guy who sent you a card for your birthday yeah, last year. Yeah, really cool art. Yeah, well, let's, let's see. Let's check it out. Oh, once again, very cool art. It is a wow. It is a picture of Nighthawk, and it says, uh, I'm wishing you happy birthday with the strength of two ordinary men. That wow. is well rendered. Nice work. It is, but only at night. Because I'm the worst. <laughs> that is pretty good. Happy birth night, I guess, Chris. Thanks so much, Chris. That's awesome. Oh, and then there's a <laughs> a certificate to uh, relax my mind with Chandu, Ruby, and Jerry. And it is a, uh, a shot of the headman and a brain in a bowl at the Headman Day Spa. Wow. That is really sweet. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah. Nice work, sir. That's awesome. That is awesome. If you would like to support the show financially, maybe give me a little birthday present that way. You can uh, check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. I know we're behind on posting those, but we did record a new episode. I just need to finish editing it. It will be up soon. And there's a whole bunch of videos and bonus podcasts and just other content that's up there to thank our donors for making it possible for us to keep doing the show. So thank you guys so much for that. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, how would they go about doing that? Well, gosh, I guess other than sending delicious booze and really thoughtful cards, you could tell a friend mm. or an enemy. Yeah, or a sea anemone. No. It wouldn't do any good. You no. could tell them. Yeah, no, they, that's, I, they do, can't listen to the show. People I'm not going to be like, why is, why is that person talking? To I'm, not, I'm not forbidding them to do it. It just, it, I don't think it'll do much. It's good. not effective. Yeah. Yeah. No, tell a, tell a human from Earth that you like the show and uh, how you found it and why you like it. Hmm. That would be amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be a very nice thing for people to do. Mm hmm. Are there any other ways you can think of? The other way to do it is to, um, wherever you got your podcast from, leave a review. Oh, I, that's cool. Yeah, I, I got a guy for podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he'll, he'll yeah. hook you up. Go I'll, hook, I'll up, give him your hook up your podcast guy with the review. Yeah. Giving him um, uh, five stars for it. Oh, gotta be five. Yeah. That's, that's a lucky number. So that's why the Illuminati loves it, right? Sure. Number five. Also to number 23. But 23, if you add those digits together, you get five. Whoa. I know. So, five stars. If there is an option to give us 23 stars, do that. Sure. Hey, Corey. Yeah. Fenord. <laughs> I bet that book's not good anymore. I don't know. I've heard it holds, holds up better than I might expect. Oh, really? But I haven't tested that theory. Uh, so, yeah, five stars would be, would be awesome. Sure. What, what, what would be an example of a review somebody might leave? Um, this show makes my ears feel nice, and I would like to give it five stars. Mm, mm, like an ASMR type thing. You could leave an ASMR style review. What is that like? You'd rub a piece of paper? You'd, you'd just be like, oh, do I have any scissors in here? <laughs> this show 
is so good. I love it. I give it five stars. I'm touching your head right now. Snip, 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 snip. There's some scissors. Snip, snip. Five stars. <laughs> That's not Is good. Is that a thing? I don't. I think it might be a thing. <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> Tell me if I did a good ASMR. I don't think I did. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And until next week. Hey, this one's for you, Vic. Ass. <laughs> yeah. You try to stop me, Nightwing. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. And they knew it. That was a good timestamp. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I forgot Kane. what category we were on. Uh, <laughs> what? I don't know. Don't do that. Michael Caine played a lot of Italian characters. That was Calliope music as Italian? <laughs> yeah. Oh. That's like a pizza pie music. <laughs> I thought that you were doing like the clown music. No, no, no. That's, that's different. That's different. Okay. Yeah. That's Italian. Are you saying all Italian people are clowns, Corey? I think you are. No. I, don't I would never say it. such a thing. Ah, dang. You switched <laughs> it up on me. I did for once. <laughs>